up, everybody? Welcome to Tom Talks. I'm your host, Tom Carroll. Had a really good conversation this week with Woody Page from Around the Horn, the Colorado Springs Gazette, longtime columnist from the Denver Post. We got into a lot of stuff, and we were only supposed to talk for about 15, 20 minutes. It ended up being a two-hour conversation. So we got into some really good stuff. I encourage you to stick around the whole time. If you are a media nerd, if you are an Around the Horn fan, if you're a Woody Page fan, you're going to really enjoy this conversation. And if you are a Pats fan, I did have my weekly Pats chat. This week I was with Phil Perry from Comcast Sportsnet New England. And in the middle of our conversation, Michael Floyd got picked up by the Patriots. So it did get cut short. So it was a little shorter, but luckily we went super long with Woody. So enjoy the conversation, everyone. All right, Woody, so 524 and a half wins all time on Around the Horn. What does that number mean to you? Uh, I had no idea. I know this, that uh, when I was younger, I saw signs on uh, executives' desks that said, uh, Babe Ruth struck out 3,000 times. <laughs> and now I understand it because I, I think I've lost uh, uh, almost uh, 1,800 times. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> <laughs> that means more to me than, than, than the 500 winning. I've, I've been on there about uh, 2,300 times. So, oh my God! Wait, I've so what's what's lot. that percentage? <laughs> I, I can't do math well. So, what's that percentage? 2,300, 500. Uh, they actually put out they put out standings every day uh, on the research papers we get, and uh, I, I think my percentage is 22 percent or something. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's not bad. That's like a it's like a second baseman. Type of batting uh, average. Utility infielder. Utility <laughs> infielder. Yeah, there you go. So, what was the process like of getting you involved in that show as a almost daily contributor? That's that's interesting, uh, actually. The question, because uh, I wonder about it sometimes too. <laughs> I was uh, I was making appearances, oddly enough, uh, on Today and Good Morning America, and even uh, CBS this morning. Uh, Whenever something happened uh, involving sports in the Rocky Mountains, because uh, most networks did not have anybody between Mississippi and LA. <laughs> right. And I sort of went, became a go to guy for national shows like uh, Hannity and Combs, and, uh, and ESPN would call me. And then uh, Mark Shapiro, who was the head of, at that time, ESPN Classics, asked me if uh, he and Jim Cohen, who I had known from when he was a sports editor, asked me if I would uh, do ESPN Classics. And I don't know if you remember those shows, but uh, they would do uh, hour-long profiles of uh, athletes. Mm -hmm. And they actually uh, led up uh, to uh, picking the – this was in the late uh, 1990s. uh, And they were leading up to picking the uh, athlete of the millennium, I think. And so they asked me – if I would meet them at a ballroom, a group of producers and directors and cameramen here in downtown Denver. And I thought, sure, yeah. And they said they paid me 500 bucks. And I thought, well, that's a nice little gig for there just an hour or so. So I showed up, and they turned in, if you remember the show, and people who did, uh, it's been classic, they, they would turn the ballroom into uh, what looked like an English manor drawing room, uh, an office. So they made it look like uh, you're in an office in England. And so I thought, well, this is fun. This could be fun. 
they made me up and gave me a bottle of water, and they said, uh, Ted Williams. And I said, well, I'm not that old. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, Joe Montana. And they said, just uh, scream the consciousness. Just tell a story. <laughs> so seven hours later. Oh, my God. They had asked me about 500 athletes or so. Everybody from Secretary to, to uh, John Elway to Peyton Manning. So they, they started doing these shows, and I would show up on just about every one of them. Uh, I would get like a minute on most of those shows, and they called me, and they said, we'd like to do it again. I said, sure, yeah, we'll pay you 1000 this time. <laughs> and I said, uh, make it 1500 because now I know what <laughs> Right, because now you know it's so, seven hours of work. Yeah, I know what the work was. It wasn't an hour <laughs> doing three or four athletes. So they came in, and they did uh, 500 more athletes. On New Year's Eve of 1999, my girlfriend and I were in the Panama Canal on a ship. And I felt like that was a good place to be when the millennial came, that, mm. uh, that nothing was going to happen to me if I was in the middle of the Panama Canal. <laughs> Although, I, I guess if you go blow up something, the Panama Canal might have been on top True. of the list. Yeah. There's a lake. There's a lake in the middle of uh, Panama, and that's where the ship is. And so my girlfriend and I were getting ready to go out and celebrate New Year's Eve, and we were sort of making out. I'll leave it like that. <laughs> and she said, you're on TV. And we had the TV on in the, in the suite we had on the ship. And I turned around, and, and I was talking about Michael Jordan, who was voted, uh, I think, the athlete of the, of the century or the athlete of the millennium, whatever it might have been. And so we stopped what we were doing, and you have to think about what we were doing. And <laughs> Leave that uh, up to the imagination. So, so they actually used the story I told about being in Monte Carlo when the Dream Team was practicing heading into the Olympics in Barcelona. And I told a couple other Michael Jordan stories throughout the uh, telecast. I got a call afterwards in, in, in early 2000 from Jim Cohen, who was the vice president of ESPN. He said, uh, we're going to do a show that is going to be a companion show to this new show we have called Party Interruption. It's doing well with uh, uh, Tony Kornheiser and Michael Wilbon. We'd like for you to be a part of it. Would you meet us at the Super Bowl and talk to us? And I said, yeah, okay. And I thought it'd be kind of like sports reporters. I hadn't watched uh, Party Interruption. I thought they were doing another sports reporters where you sit around a table or something like that. Right. So I got to Tampa where the Super Bowl was that year. And uh, I said, what kind of show are you talking about? Well, it's going to be four or five guys. And maybe a host, and you would. He said, "You ever watch Hollywood Squares?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "You'd be the middle square, like Paul in the block." And I said, "It's like a game show." Well, a little bit. We're going to have scoring and a winner. And I went, "Really? That sounds awful." <laughs> and so they called. They called me. I, so months went by, and they called me, and I was at the British Open. It was a year when Tiger Woods won at St Andrews, and they said. Uh, so you want to do the show? And I said, not really. Uh, I don't want to move to New York. No, you can do it in Denver. And they said, uh, it's a half-hour show every day. And we went on, and I said, nah, I really don't want to do it. I, I'm kind of winding my career down. And uh, I remember Jim saying, oh, you'll be a national star on TV. And I said, well, I'm not really interested in that. <laughs> oh, well, you know, millions of people will watch you every day. And I went, well, I don't really care. <laughs> I, was, I was not really interested in it. And he said, would you think about it overnight? And I said, yeah. And so I didn't think about it at all. I, I covered the last round of the, the British Open. And the next day he called and he said, did you think about it? And I said, yeah. Uh, I don't want to do it. And he said, well, here's what it pays. And I said, so where do I show up? <laughs> 
I've heard Jackie Mack talk about it before too, and she was pretty reluctant for kind of the same reasons. Like it seems like they just thought it was kind of this hokey little show and wasn't really on brand. Yeah, I thought it might be on uh, for 13 weeks, uh, <laughs> and I really didn't know. I, they called me and I said, "Who are going to be the other people?" Well, we're working on it. You're our number. You're, you're our first person, <laughs> but we're going to talk to Bob Ryan and Jackie McMullen and a few other people. And so I thought we'd show up, do a half hour, that'd be the end of it. And for people who don't know, and most people don't, we spend about six hours working on the show. And I, I know that's hard to believe, but we have. Uh, conference calls in the morning, research, the researchers for ESPN. I have an associate who works with me and we do research and then you show up and you do makeup and you do rehearsal kind of. And then it takes, uh, I, I don't think it's giving anything away, but I don't care. Uh, ESPN thinks I'm incorrigible anyway, but I just signed a new contract to keep going for several more years. There so, you go. Congrats. Anyway, uh, it takes it takes close to two hours to do a half hour show, and I don't think people realize that that it's not just because some guy wrote me a day from school. He said my friend says that you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, you're a local writer, and how could you know about national subjects and stuff like that? And I wrote him back. I actually filled him in that uh, we do a lot of research. We get 60 pages of research material. We have a conference call for hour and 15, 20 minutes every day. That we uh, exchange emails. Uh, during the night and then we show up and we go over all the tape highlights and uh, I have to watch a lot of games that I normally wouldn't watch. I mean, mostly Thursday night football. <laughs> and so <laughs> yeah, we, I'm forced to watch that too. And so uh, we met in New York to go over the idea of the show. And this is a true story. Max Kellerman was the host. I'd never heard of him. He was a young uh, boxing expert from New York that did uh, like local public television on boxing in the Yankees. And there were a lot of uh, the usual suspects, uh, Jay Mariotti, Bob Ryan, uh, there was Tim Kalashaw from Dallas. Uh, there were six, seven of us. And we met at the Carnegie Deli, which just recently closed. And the producer, who now is with the head of programming at MSNBC, uh, somebody said, well, what's the show going to be like? And Max Kellerman started talking about boxing and the Yankees. And I had the flu that day. And I said, after about 20 minutes of listening to him, I said, pardon me, Max, but you apparently had me confused with somebody who gives a damn what you think. Because <laughs> he was you know, 28, 29. Yeah. And I've been around forever. And I didn't want to listen to him. And the producer said, that's the show. <laughs> and I really think everybody thought it was going to be like the sports reporters where you just sit around and, and everybody gets turned and it's boring and stuff like that. Right. And and there's a book book about ESPN. And I'm sorry, this is a long-winded answer to one question. But <laughs> I love there's it. There's a book about ESPN uh, that came out, uh, and those guys have all the fun or something. Right. Jim and, Miller. And I, I was interviewed, but uh, Tim Kalashaw had an interesting quote. He said, when we went on the air, we couldn't understand why Woody was on the show. <laughs> And he said, after two weeks, we realized that what he was the show. <laughs> so, because I didn't really care, and I still don't. I know that makes no sense, but I didn't really care whether I was on it or not. And and I, I kind of developed a persona of a guy that I watched on afternoon TV when I was growing up, Soupy Sales. And you're not old enough to remember him. Yeah, I don't know him. He was a he did a very very famous network uh, in the early days of TV, a famous network show that supposedly was for kids, 
but it actually was for adults. So uh, the kids were watching it on one level and adults were watching it because they got most of the stuff. And so I kind of use Soupy Sales as a starting point and I'm kind of a goof anyway. So uh, I think what what it did lead to is uh, that guys like Kalashaw and Bob Ryan even and Mariotti and Jackie all had to kind of develop a personality. You couldn't just be a sports writer talking on television. And it was kind of like, you know, Tony Kornheiser uh, is basically what he's like, but he became a little goofier and started wearing costumes and, and Will Bond kind of went along with it. And so the two shows in the afternoon uh, around the horn, pardon interruption and been around for 15 years. And um, I think they'll be there forever in the landscape of, of ESPN. I'm sure I won't be, but uh they developed new characters, on, not characters, but new people on their show, and, and, and a lot of them have gone on to to be on uh, other network shows, including uh, Good Morning America, The Today Show, and uh, Kids and Hers, and uh, Omani Jones is now on the, the Dan Lebertard show. So, I mean, a lot of guys have used uh, the program as a stepping stone to even bigger, bigger shows. When did you know Around so the Horn was going to be a success? Not originally, and, and and I'll make this a lot shorter answer, but uh, we were about two months in, and and, and uh, sports writers who were friends of mine and TV editors around the country were ripping the show and said it was uh, the worst show in the history of, of television. Yeah, they were jealous. And, and they were guys my age. I was in my 50s, and they were guys my age, and they thought, you know, we were silly, we were arguing, and uh, I was being goofy and and so it bothered me because I didn't think I was very good and I didn't think the show was very good. <laughs> and all I heard was, A, that's a terrible show, and B, my friends didn't watch it because it was only in the afternoon. And so I called, true story, I called ESPN and, and the vice president of ESPN. I said, I want to quit, find somebody else to, to do the show. So, you know, I'm sorry, thank you for doing it, but. I'll do it through the next month or two until you find somebody. And they said, well, you really don't want to quit. And I said, I, I, I can't sleep at night. I'm telling you the truth. I said, I can't sleep at night. It is ruining my life because I just think I'm the worst thing in the history of television, and that's what I keep reading. And so I went to a football game at the end of the season in Boulder, and they were doing a new addition on the stadium. This makes no sense, but the story's going somewhere. <laughs> and I normally don't walk into the crowd because I'm in the press box. And I walked around the stadium just to see the new edition. A young lady came up to me and said, you're Bobby Page. And I said, no, <laughs> I'm not. Oh, yeah, you're Bobby Page. My boyfriend and I watch you every day. And I said, no, I'm not Bobby Page. She said, yesterday we were making love, and he was watching you. And I said, well, that's more information I really want. Oh, no. And all of her friends were laughing, and, they were t- and I was just kind of going over it. She said, would you uh, do an autograph for my friend that's what's his name she said david so i put david uh thanks for watching around the horn i really appreciate it i don't think you should be doing other activities while you're watching the show <laughs> that's which is uh, bobby page <laughs> and i handed it to her and she said see i told you you were bobby page <laughs> and i went home that night and i slept great and i remember right before i went to sleep thinking when did i believe i was walter cronkite <laughs> I am what I am. I'm a sports writer. It wasn't like I'm, you know, I'm Dan Rather or anything uh, or Walter Conkite. Uh, I'm not a serious 
TV sportscasters like Al Michaels or somebody like that. I'm just a, just a guy. I'm a jag, just a guy. <laughs> and so I, I went back to ESPN and I said, uh, I'd like to, to continue if it's okay. Yeah, we love you. Man. So, uh, in fact, I ended up in New York uh, doing a show called Cold Pizza with Skip Bayless. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that next. Day. How was that two years in New York? It was about two and a half years, but it it reminds me of the story of the guy who's told uh, he has three months to live. And he says to the doctor, well, what is it I can do to make it seem longer? And he said, find the ugliest woman you can find, <laughs> the worst woman in the world, and marry her. And he said, why would I do that? He said, that three months will seem like two years. <laughs> and that's what it seemed like. <laughs> it, it seemed like five years. <laughs> so you just missed the hell out of Denver. Uh, Skip, Skip is a, a, you know, I'll say this for everybody, and I, I told anybody that I asked, is Skip is exactly what he is off the air. He is exactly, I don't think I'm quite what I am off the air, but Skip is exactly the same way. We would go out to dinner and he would order fish, and, and it, it could not be cooked in oil. It couldn't have anything on it. It would be a piece of dry fish, no butter, nothing. And uh, I got him a date, a blind date. And at the end of the evening, the lady told me, please do not ever let me go out with him again. <laughs> and that's a true story. Uh, he's happily married now. But Skip and I, uh, we had a studio audience at Cold Pizza, and i go out and talk to the audience. And Skip would go stand in the corner and rehearse. And he had a yellow Liga pad that would have, for every subject, would have 14 or 15 points he wanted to make. And I had an index card, and I'd put the subject on it. Like if we were talking about, say, LeBron, I'd put LeBron on it. And i just, <laughs> like I do on Around the Horn, I'd just say whatever comes to my mind. Well, after the segment was over, Gip would kind of push me into the corner and say, I didn't get to my 15 points. And I said, I didn't get to my one point. What are you talking about? <laughs> and we actually physically got into a fight one day. <laughs> and, you know, I kind of put up with him. And I, I, when he went to Fox recently, people asked him about cold pizza. And all he did was talk about Stephen A. Smith and what a great time they had. And somebody brought up me and he said, well, he was kind of a, you know, off the wall kind of guy. <laughs> well, he wouldn't have been on the, he wouldn't have been on cold pizza if it hadn't been for me because, Part of my contract to go to New York was I got to approve whoever I work with. And they actually were looking for, uh, uh, tell the truth, they were looking for a young African-American. And I rehearsed with probably 100 young African-Americans. And they asked me who I liked, and it was Michael Smith, who has you know, become a very big Good personality, a, a talent at ESPN. That's who I wanted to work with. And I went off to the Olympics in Athens, so that was the year that it was. And Mark Shapiro, Jim Cohen, called me and said, uh, how would you like working with Skip Bayless? And I said, well, he's another old white guy. I mean, <laughs> do you really want two white guys? I think they were trying to do a kind of a pardon interruption kind of thing. Mm, like a morning that. PTI. Yeah, I think that's what they were going for. But I had known Skip forever when he was a columnist in Dallas and Chicago and, and out on the West Coast. And I thought, well, you know, I like him. But I, I really, he had done the Jim Rome's. I think he filled in for Jim Rome. But I, I had never really seen him much other than on sports reporters. And so they flew him into New York when I came back from the Olympics. And we rehearsed for a few days. And we talked to the executives at ESPN and I talked. And they said, well, who would you like to work with? And I said, well, I'd really like to work with Michael Smith. I, I think we'd play off each other. I said, I like his personality, his knowledge, he's a young guy. 
that's kind of what you're going for. And they said, well, what do you think about Skip? And I said, well, uh, you know, Skip and I could get along. And they said, well, um, we'd like to hire Skip, but we won't do it if you don't want to hire him and work with him. And I said, no, I, I'll do it. And they said, uh, you, you like him over Michael Smith? And I said, no, but I, I really think Michael Smith would be good for the program. But And nobody's ever known this. I'm telling you something that has never been revealed in history. Because we, we must have uh, rehearsed with with rap artists, ex-athletes. Really? Uh, Who's the craziest person writers? that you rehearsed with? Dr. Dre. Wow. They brought in they brought in a, a bunch of different rap artists, and as I said, we we uh, columnists from Detroit, Chicago. They were they were flying in. It was like America's Got Talent or something like that. Because every day I would show up, we were in rehearsals. Uh, the show was on and it was about to go off the air, and they'd ask me if I'd come in and help save it. And I said, I don't think anything can save that program. So they totally <laughs> redid it. They were trying to do the Today Show on the ESPN with you know, the movie stars and cooking shows, the people that are on the Food Network. And uh, they brought in a new, a new director and a new producer, and they kind of changed it. And they said what my part would be to do, uh, like uh, 10 minutes every half hour and do a debate like, you know, Part interruption or around the horn, and again, Mark Shapiro, who went on to grander things and produces all the Mission Impossible movies, for instance. That's huh. that's one of his major jobs now. He was a young guy, and really uh, developed most of the programming uh, with with Jim Cohen, who's now the head of programming at the NFL Network. Those two guys developed all the original programming that exists on uh, ESPN. I did a show called Dream Job for three seasons. I remember that. Kind of like American Idol. So they were trying to develop uh, original programming. So finally, we we discussed it, and uh, I said, yeah, let's go with Skip, and we'll try it for a while, and maybe then one of us won't work. And so uh, the show actually caught on. I mean, I I think when I went there, it had like 80,000 viewers in the morning, and, and we got it up over 250 or something like that. And and Skip was his serious. I mean, all of his everything that he says, he actually believes. There's a, but he would spend six hours a day watching highlights, and I would spend maybe five minutes because <laughs> I wanted to enjoy New York. And so I thought, it, you know, I I played the role of uh, you know, if, if you go back in time, Abbott and Costello and, and uh, Laurel and Hardy and Martin and Lewis, and I was kind of the the funny guy and. And Mark Spiro called me once. He said, can you dial it back about 10%? I said, I don't know how to dial it back. <laughs> I'm either this or not. And so I, I was looking. They put me in a in another studio in New York, and I was doing uh, Round the Horn, Dream Job, Disney. I was doing a sports show for kids on the Disney Network. I was doing First in 10. I was like on the air seven or eight hours a day. And on the on Around the Horn, they stuck me in a studio that was by three by five. And I told my assistant who I'd taken from Denver, I said, we got to put something up behind us. We got nothing. And he said, well, what are you thinking about? And I said, I don't know. Let's put a blackboard up there or something. And so we put the blackboard up and we were having fun with it. We were, we were ripping Jay Mariotti on the blackboard and <laughs> stuff like that. And Shapiro called me and said, uh, lose the blackboard. That's no not way. ESPN. Yeah. And I said, okay. 
and, and we'd only been doing it about two months. And about a week and a half later, Cohen called me back. He said, put the, and I'm not going to put the word in, but he said, put the bleeping blackboard back up. And I said, really? <laughs> he said, yeah. <laughs> People complained. <laughs> and, the, and the president of the network, John Skipper, likes it. <laughs> so that's where, that was the beginning of the blackboard. And it's been, uh, as Tony Reale says, the two inanimate objects on Around the Horn. The mute button and the blackboard, and those are the two <laughs> most popular aspects of the show. Now, how do you come up with what you put on that every day? Uh, I sit at bars and drink and uh, <laughs> write on napkins. What's happened, uh, I guess, I have a website, woodypage.com, mm-hmm. promoted, but uh, people have started sending me, I would guess 90% of them suck, <laughs> but people have started, I would say for the first 10 or 12 years, it was me or my assistant would come up with something, and it would just be me writing a bunch of stuff down on napkins. Or I'd go to Hawaii on vacation, and I'd see silly T-shirts, and I'd twist those or whatever it might be. And My assistant started working on it, and he had great penmanship. So he actually writes <laughs> and now have a new associate. Her name is Madison Faulkner, and she's 25 years old, and she wants to be a sideline reporter. And she found out that the most important aspects of the job are good penmanship and <laughs> putting my makeup on every day. And so she has great penmanship, but and she didn't when she started. But I said, people got to be able to read the blackboard. So I come up with, uh, she and I come up with probably 15 a week, and we use maybe eight of them or something like that. That's awesome. You just have to come up with three a day, and then they changed the show four or five years ago, and now it's two a day. And I was doing... And I'm just free flowing here, so stop me whatever you want to. I love. I was it. doing uh, my my contracts were 220 shows, and it was there were only like 230 shows. And really, I'm 70, and I did. So when I got into my 60s, I told them I can't I can't keep the schedule up because I was traveling all the time to games uh, and college game on Saturday and a pro game on Sunday and and uh, all the major events, Olympics and World Series and Super Bowls. And I said, i got to cut back the schedule. So I cut back some of my travel schedule. And I, and I, and I cut back, uh, I now do about 125 shows. I think I do more than, well, I know I do more than anybody else. But it's, uh, it's still kind of great. I do two or three a week. Now, how would first take look right now if Michael Smith got that job instead of Skip Bayless? Where would we be right now? Would all of our lives be different? Well, I, I know would, your life would be different. I, 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 doubt, I doubt I would have been with it. And, and, and everything I tell you today, uh, I'm not making it up anything, but most you've asked good questions, I think. And maybe I'm talking too long. But <laughs> after I, I signed a three-year contract, and we were approaching the end of the, the contract, and they announced, because of the cost of doing cold pizza in New York, that they were moving it to Bristol. ESPN felt like they were moving all of the operations in New York. It was just so costly. And it was. I mean, they were having the bigger right. staffs. And, and, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but they had union workers that were doing most of the job. And uh, you have the union rules in New York that they don't have in Bristol, really. Mm-hmm. And they had an agreement with a company that produced that show and a bunch of other shows in New York. And so they decided to shut them down and... I told them that my contract was for New York. I wasn't going to Bristol. I was single. I was in my late 50s, and uh, I didn't want to live in Bristol. I'd been up there a bunch of times, and it was 2,000 guys and about 
uh, eight young women, and <laughs> it, it had one motel that was a residence in, and there was an old motel, and it was like two hours, uh, you know, from Hartford or something, four hours from New York, and I went, man, I'll die here. I'll just <laughs> die on the street in Bristol, Connecticut, and I'm not going to Bristol. And the other thing is I got tired of getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning. It re- really it was killing me, literally, I think. And I got tired of working with Skip. And those are the three reasons. So I told them that I was going to quit. And they asked me if I'd continue to do ESPN. What was I going to do? I was considering going to a couple other cities. Uh, I mentioned one, Washington, and also considering Philadelphia. And then uh, I got an offer from the Post to come back to Denver. And, and I miss Denver, my friends. So uh, we reached an agreement for me to come back to Denver and continue to do Around the Horn. But I go back in time, I, I, I'll tell you a quick story. And again, these, nobody, I, I'll, I'll write them in a book someday, I guess, when I'm no longer blue skin. But after we were doing Around the, uh, around the Horn for a year, year and a half or something, you may remember Fox made a big push in. They were doing a sports center kind of show, and they were trying to, it's like they're doing now. They were trying to take over a lot of ESPN's territory, at least make a dent in it. And so my agent came to me, and we met with Kellerman in Washington, which is where the headquarters of Around the Horn is. And Fox made me and Max an offer. And actually, the show was going to be called Max and Woody, and it was going to be like part interruption. And uh, he would film in New York, and I'd be in Denver. True story. I don't think it's ever been talked about. And Fox offered him a two-year deal, offered me a two-year deal. And uh, it was for a lot more money than either one of us were making. And we both accepted. And um, Max announced uh, he, to ESPN he was leaving, and he was off the air that day. And actually, that's how... Tony Reale, who was working as Stab Boy for Pardon Interruption, kind of filled in at the last moment. And uh, they started trying out a few different people and ended up with Reale. And so uh, my agent told ESPN I was leaving because it was about three times what I was making. Truthfully. Jesus. And they said, wait a day. And, and they never do that. I, I can now say this because I guess I'm grandfathered in, but <laughs> they never do that because, you know, they, when. Keith Overman left, and and Dan left, and and Rich Eisen. They just said go because mm-hmm. ESPN, and I, I believe them. ESPN's bigger than any of the personalities. Right, it's like the NFL. Or, it's like protect anyway. the shield type of thing. Yeah, and so they never because my agent told me he said you know this is going to be your last day show, and I said yeah, so big deal, whatever, because <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of the way I am. And uh, he called me back that night and said, uh, uh, ESPN would like to counter. They'll match the offer. And I said, okay, I'll stay at ESPN. I like doing around the horn. Well, then uh, he called uh, Fox, and it's kind of interesting. He called Fox and said, what are you going to say at ESPN? And he said, well, the show was going to be Max and Woody. And he said, well, it's got to be Max and somebody else. And so they said, well, give us five minutes. And they called back and made a three-year offer. And up the ante. And, and I won't bore you, but the, the, it kind of went back and forth, and I wasn't really negotiating. I was just sitting there. <laughs> and I got a call from the president of Fox who said, I uh, understand you're coming here. And my agent said, whatever you say, don't say yes. Because you papered <laughs> the conversation. I said, well, it's a great offer you've made, and I'm excited about the possibilities. And then they made an offer to me, Max, that 
Max would do a late night show. This was before that. I think they were they were talking to us about moving to LA and doing a show that would come on at midnight and that they'd put us on situation comedies and that they would have us as a second and third man in the NFL booth of games. And I mean, it was a real glamorous offer. Yeah. But I felt I felt beholden to the ESPN. I thought they had been nice enough to put me on the air and keep me on and the Blackboard and all that kind of stuff. And so I decided to stay at ESPN. And Max went to Fox, and the show became IMAX. Right, I remember and IMAX. I don't know if you remember it. I remember that show. Most people don't remember. Yeah, it was on I... for about six months, and it got canceled. And if I'd have gone to Fox, that's where I'd be today. I wouldn't be with Michael Smith, <laughs> but I wouldn't have been with Cold Pizza because I was tired of getting up in the morning. I was tired of working with Skip, and I didn't want to go to Bristol. Yeah, hey, and I am so right there with Michael... you with the Bristol concerns because I'm here now, and yeah, you hit the you hit the nail on the head with uh, Bristol life. It's it's quite barren. Well, I, I it's I think it's improved some. I, I think you'd agree. Yeah. I mean, it, it's grown, but <laughs> it, it was not where I really wanted to spend the rest of my life. And it's yeah. not that I have to be in a big city or anything, but uh, Bristol reminds me of towns in Colorado that uh, you know have. 10,000 people in one grocery store. Right. So, There's not a ton going on. I know it's not that bad, but a lot of people fly in and do their work and leave. And then they leave. Listen, so, there's there's a reason why a, a, quite a bit of our talent lives close to New York City or in Jersey and commutes to Bristol. Well, Jake Crawford, Jake, because when, when I was considering, they were trying to talk me into going to Bristol. And Jake Crawford lived in New Jersey, in a really nice area in New Jersey, and that might show shock people but he lived in an area where there's hills and trees and things like that and he was he agreed to go to bristol and continue to do cold pizza and he had a two and a half hour drive each way because he had kids in high school and he had his wife in new jersey and i kept thinking because i looked at some places i looked at a place where groucho marx lived up in connecticut uh in a real nice area and A, it was very, very expensive. I was getting paid a lot, but it was very expensive. And I didn't want to make a drive of over an hour every day. I mean, in New York, I was making uh, a car would pick me up, and it was like a five minutes to the studio. <laughs> so I lived on Central Park. And, I mean, I, I, went, I didn't want to give up. I lived on the Upper West Side across from Lincoln Center. I would go over and watch The Apprentice with this guy that uh, I thought was goofier than I was. I think his name was Trump. <laughs> and and I could walk across the street and watch watch uh, the finale of uh, and I you know I would talk to Trump because he watches ESPN yeah and he I watched lived everything. on the park and I and and I loved to go to the theater and most of what I was doing in New York didn't translate to Bristol or anywhere around there so I came back to Denver and it's not like Denver's biggest metropolitan area in the world but uh, it's a nice area it's i hear denver's fantastic i had a buddy that has his family from there he lived in california his whole life but he just moved there to work for the local abc affiliate and he loves it well i actually work for the local abc affiliate oh well there we go i'll have to put you guys in touch <laughs> yeah i uh i do uh i do a sunday night uh, show for them and uh and i do a monday show and for about a half hour, and and if something big happens, uh, they put me on the five or ten o'clock. They'll news. throw you on there. Yeah. So uh, the, the general manager over there is a good friend of mine, and and he'd asked me uh, if I would uh, do some things for him, and so I moved from the Denver Post to the Colorado Springs Gazette. Uh, 
because a friend of mine owns that and uh, another friend is a publisher. And I thought it'd be a good way to sort of wind down my career. I don't have to live in Colorado Springs and then I'll put down Colorado Springs <laughs> my place. But uh, I write a column from Denver and I write, I've, I've cut back that schedule. And I mean, I've gone to most of the Broncos games this year, or a lot of them. And I'm going to spend Christmas day in Kansas City. I'm really excited about being in ten below temperatures there. But uh, <laughs> I've cut I've cut that back. But I'm doing stuff for them. I got the website, and uh, uh, maybe someday I'll be wise enough to do a podcast like you. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the Woody Page podcast would be listened to by many. How was watching The Apprentice with Trump? That had to be an experience. I mean, that's Trump on his rise. I- yeah, I was. I had known him uh, when he was uh, owner of the of the New Jersey Generals. Mm-hmm. I had a good friend, Bill Daniels, who invented cable television. I, I don't want to sound like uh, Howard Cosell used to name drop all the time, but Bill Daniels invented <laughs> Will Bond cable name television. Drops. Yeah, probably sounds like that. But uh, <laughs> Bill Daniels helped start the United States Football League. He owned the Los Angeles Stars, and they signed Steve Young. I don't know. You have to go back in your history books to Steve Young out of college, out of BYU, signed, and so did uh, Jim Kelly. Mm -hmm. And so what they were doing, they were trying to get quarterbacks. And Trump owned the New Jersey team, and he signed uh, Doug Flutie, Herschel Walker, and Doug Flutie. (laughs) And so I'd go to their meetings. Denver had a team, and I was kind of interested because I liked the spring ball idea. You know, people weren't getting enough of uh, NFL football, and they were playing in the spring. And Trump basically destroyed the USFL. And this is not an anti-presidential statement. I'm not here to talk about politics unless <laughs> yeah. you ask me. But Trump talked the USFL into moving to the fall to compete directly against the NFL. And he also raised the ante. I mean, he started signing guys for unreasonable sums. And they were trying to hold down the salary. So as long as they played in the spring and didn't spend a lot of money, they probably could have been around for a while. But as soon as they moved to the fall, they couldn't compete against the NFL. And uh, they also, most of the owners didn't have Trump kind of money to actually keep up the spending. And so as a result of that, the SFL died pretty quickly and filed a lawsuit against the NFL and won the case and got awarded $1 (laughs) by the jury. Yeah, I saw the 30 for 30 recently. So I, I actually would see Trump in New York and uh, he invited me to come see The Apprentice. I invited him to come watch Cold Pizza, and he came over one day. And so then he invited me to The Apprentice, the finale. I think it was the first year, the first like, You have to go back to when it started, but I was in New York from 2003 to 2006. Right, that feels so, like the range of when the first season would have been. Yeah, and so, because you know, most of them took place in his office, and I lived about, a block and a half from one of the Trump, the other, not the Trump Tower on Fifth Avenue, I think, but the, the Trump Hotel. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where I'd see him out on the street. It's right at Columbus Circle uh, and, and Broadway. And so I'd see him and he and we talked about football and he wanted to buy an NFL franchise and tried to buy the Buffalo Bills at one point. I think the course of history would have changed if he owned the Buffalo Bills. What yeah. do you think about that? I think we'd be in a much different situation if one of these leagues let him buy one of these teams. Didn't he try to buy the Yankees at one point, too? Uh, I don't remember that, uh, honestly, but I know he was really making The Bills was semi-recently. I think that was semi-recently. 
Yeah, he may have made a run at the Yankees, but I don't think the Steinbrenner is retired. He was sort of the Mark Cuban figure because Mark right. Cuban kept trying to buy baseball teams and teams in other sports, and nobody wanted Mark Cuban and nobody wanted Donald Trump. <laughs> and I'm not saying that. I, I actually liked Trump when I met him, mm-hmm. and I liked Mark Cuban. Every time I've ever been around Mark Cuban, I, I've enjoyed him, and mm-hmm. you know, he has a reputation that's both good and bad, but he's he's become bigger known for Shark Tank than yeah. he is for owning the Dallas Mavericks. So both Donald Trump and Mark Cuban used their sports enterprises to sort of propel them into other worlds that made them even bigger, as yeah. it were. Well, Trump's pretty big now. And meanwhile... <laughs> I don't think it gets much bigger than president. I'm, and meanwhile, I'm nobody. <laughs> <laughs> I must tell you, though, we were on in uh, Europe and at, at 8 o'clock at night... ESPN had ESPN America, and it was on all over. And I used to get a lot more emails and mail and uh, photograph requests from Europe than I did from the United States because we were on in prime time. Oh, I was really big in in England and Ireland and Scotland. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know that I was very big in the countries where people really can't understand me in English, much less in (laughs) French or German. Well, you get muted every five seconds, so it's hard to actually get a sentence out. And in Australia, yeah, I got a call, and I went down to Australia, and I met with – they started an Around the Horn in Australia. And so they brought me in, and they introduced me to this guy, and they said, he's going to be Woody Page. And I said, (laughs) oh, did you lose a bet or something? (laughs) The Australian Woody Page. I don't know what it – you know, Deportes does – take off on around the oh park. do they because i met those guys once when i was in mexico i know that they do a pti because it's on in our studio sometimes muted we're never actually watching it but i see a pti i know that they do one nacion for sports nation i've never seen the around the horn take though interesting on deportes well, yeah they may have gone away they actually have guys from miami and los angeles and i think dallas and one from mexico city that were doing uh the around the horn deportes because I'm gonna have to look that up because I, I was surprised honestly I was surprised around the horn uh, survived because they tried in the afternoon you may remember they tried Rome they tried about fifteen yep. different shows Rome is burning they they tried like fifteen different shows and to lead in the sports center and I think uh, you know they found sort of an Alexa with Michael and Kornheiser who were doing basically what they were doing at the Washington Post. And so they needed a companion show, which they now kind of call Happy Hour, and they get a liquor <laughs> sponsor. Right. And oddly enough, PTI and Around the Horn have better ratings than the uh, first sports center that comes on in the afternoon. Right. PT- I mean, PTI gets almost a million viewers a day. It's, they do crazy ratings. Yeah. We go up. Nobody ever tells me, but they, they go over a million. And I think it depends on the day of the week, and it depends on the events. and. Mm-hmm. What's going on? Uh, football season is stronger than in summer, but we found out. For everyone. And that's what I found out that first time is college students, and it's tough to register college students because they're watching in dorms and, mm-hmm. and uh, condos and bars, and a lot of people watching in bars because that's what I hear. I go to the airport, and we take the show earlier in the day, and I go to the airport, and I get on an airplane that's got TVs on it, and people will turn around and look and go, no, nah, you can't be that guy. You're on an airplane. <laughs> Because people kind of assume that it's that it's live or something, right. but I uh, I think we get between a half million and a million, or we get less than pardon interruptions. So mm-hmm. we're good lead in for them, 
we probably need a better lead-in. I don't even know what I, I think our lead-in is NFL today or something. <laughs> it's one of the NFL shows. But with Bomani, I work on his radio show quite a bit. And whenever his radio show's on, the TV show that he's on with Levitard is on a screen on in the background in our studio. And people walk in that don't typically work on the show and they're confused. And I'm like, yeah, it's pre-taped, man. That's that's kind of how this business works. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, it's produced by the same people that do our show in part interruption. And right. so uh, when we have someone who's on the show from Miami, like Bomani, who still does our show not as often as yeah. he is. And he's he's really he's real his career's really taken off with mm-hmm. his radio show and doing the Levitard show and I hear rumors that there could be another big show coming to ESPN. I hear those rumors that. as well. You probably know more about it than I, yeah, <laughs> you probably know more about that uh, than I do. But I really have great respect for Bomani. I don't think he has much respect for me, but <laughs> when we do something out of uh, out of Miami, we actually have to wait on Bomani or Israel Gutierrez so they get through doing the Levitard show mm-hmm. and then we uh, then we start taping Round of Horn. Now I've but actually it, shadowed been... Tony Reale in the past and I was there one day uh, and you were on and it was during a break it was I think it was around when I forget the pitcher whose parent had passed away and they didn't know how to tell him it happened during a start last postseason and you were telling a story and I bring this up because it's a fascinating story you were telling a story about how you were at an ABA game and a ref died during the game. And I thought that was just a fascinating story because you were at the game and you didn't, there was some sort of issue with being able to report it, even though the game was going on still. Well, it happened in, uh, on Long Island. The New York Nets, in one of their earlier incarnations, mm-hmm. and they had Jews serving at one time. <laughs> and people kind of forget that. But uh, they played on Long Island in an arena called the Allen Garden, which looked like an old bowling alley or something. seated about 8,000. And I was there for a game, and that's when there was two referees. Right. Not three. And one of the referees started, he went to his knees, and uh, one of the trainers went out and sort of asking what was going on. And at the time, uh, the sports writers, sat right next to the coaches and the benches. Those now have become premium seats in the NBA, and they've moved sports writers and broadcasters upstairs. But at that point, I was right next to the end of the bench, and they put the referee right next to me, and I thought he was dehydrated or something. They were giving him water, and then he just slumped. And I was sitting like two feet away, and I said to one of the trainers, now both the trainers were there, and there was a doctor. That was in, they didn't have a lot of medical staff hanging around old ABA games. And uh, I said, he doesn't look good because he's trying. And, they, and the guy said, he's dead. Uh, he had a heart attack. And uh, so they gathered two of the players and a ball boy and two trainers, and they carried him out of the arena. And they announced to the crowd that he was going to be fine. Well, there was two or three amazing things about that night. Number one, that was the first time I saw one referee work a game. Oh, yeah, that must have been he had difficult. To work the, he had to work the game. You know, it looked like the old Harlem Globetrotter. I mean, <laughs> from that standpoint, I'm not trying to be too funny here, but you know, Harlem Globetrotters carried a referee with them when they played the New Jersey Wrens or the Washington Generals or whatever. And it was very difficult for a referee, and I knew the referee, and I talked to him during timeouts. 
in the old ABA, it was a lot friendlier and, and lower key. And I talked to referees during timeouts, and I go, well, that looked like a bad call. And the referee said to me, yeah, it was. <laughs> but I'm about to make it up. <laughs> so they would do a makeup call to make up for their lousy guy. Well, I talked to him, and, and he said to me, how is the other guy? Because he didn't know. He's still refereeing the game. And I said, it's not good. And he said, well, they, they announced that he was uh, all right. And I said, he's not all right. And so I didn't want to be the one to tell him that his compatriots died. But the guy's right there on the bench. And I don't think that's ever happened at a sports event of a major professional sport. Since then, or before then, that I know of, that maybe requires some research for me, and neither did. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna but, ha- I think I'm going to have to uh, look that one up. I didn't really want to cover the game after that, but I mean, that's yeah. my job, and I thought that's a lot more important. And so I did write a column about what happened and that the crowd didn't know and the players didn't know. I think two of the players had helped carry him off, so I'm sure they knew. But it was one of the weirdest nights that I've ever experienced. I mean, but there are a lot of things in the ABA that ABA gave the NBA four teams, gave it the three point shot. The NBA wouldn't took the three point shot reluctantly, and Bob Ryan won't get over it. <laughs> still. He still hates three point shots. <laughs> but uh, they didn't take the red, white, and blue ball, but the WNBA uses the colored ball and the uh, Olympics. And uh, you know, it was fun. Larry Brown, when he moved to the NBA and was coaching the Denver team. He would come out warm-ups, and they would do the warm-ups with red, white, and blue balls. And the NBA hated that. Oh, interesting. They couldn't stop them from using them. Yeah, so they they did it for for years until Larry finally gave up on it. I still have one. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. I I think I have one. It's autographed from uh, the Memphis Tams, the team that I coach. But I I really, of all the things I've ever done, I enjoyed covering the ABA because Jews serving the the Iceman, George Gervin came out of that league. Right, yeah, a lot of ro- really good players. Well, Bobby Jones, who was on a championship team in Philadelphia. George McGinnis, who was, they had in Philadelphia when they won the championship with Moses Malone. They had Bobby Jones and Julius Serving at a front court. They were all ABA guys. <laughs> and there were, uh, I, I just did a documentary. It wasn't my documentary, but I helped with a documentary done out of New York about a player who was the greatest player in the South in college uh, score, I should say, since Pete Maravich, a guy named Johnny Newman, who, who went to the ABA and then went on to the NBA and never had much of a career. But he averaged uh, 43 points a game as a sophomore at Ole Miss and left to join. He was going to break all of Pete Maravich's records if he kept playing. In the NBA, he was not much of a player. I'll just tell you a quick story. He ended up with the Lakers. He just went back to school and graduated. It's a great story. He's now in his 60s and graduated from Ole Miss. And it's kind of like the Larry Fitzgerald story where he graduated from the University of Phoenix uh, in the past year or so and promised his mother he'd do it. Well, Johnny Newman in in his 60s went back, lived in the dormitory. He's got a wife and kids and graduated from Ole Miss after quitting after sophomore year. Anyway, Johnny Newman was not much of a pro player, but he ended up with the Lakers, and he never got to play. He was he was the literal 12th man. And so Pat Riley one night sent him into the game, and he ripped off in the, in the old days. They don't do it now. They had buttons down their warm-up pants, and he ripped off his warm-up pants, and all he had on was a jock because he never put his shorts on because <laughs> he never played. <laughs> so he ran out onto the court. It was like Paul Newman in that hockey movie. I don't even know how we got to talking about, I mean, I know I brought up the the ref dying at the game. I don't even know what you said that got me there, 
<laughs> I think I might have just wanted to hit that story at some point uh, while I was talking to you because I just yeah, thought well, it was think, a really interesting story. Yeah, you probably get an advantage that most people don't. Most, but although they do get a taste of it, is the most fun we have on around the horn is before we go in the air. Oh yeah, those conversations it, were hilarious. We're taking, yeah, and you probably picked up on it. Well, they well they made they made you take a, a has, they made you take your chalkboard down at one point because of uh you had a you had a joke about sausage up there. I forgot it was something about German sausage. You were calling someone a kraut. Uh, I, don't, I don't remember. I don't remember what the joke was, but the producer was like, "Yeah, tell Woody he's got to take that down." <laughs> well, the worst one was my assistant said, "Here's one. You know how those trucks? And this is how we come up with them." Truthfully, you asked me, and everybody <laughs> asked me about it. He said, "You know those trucks that say if you don't like my driving, call one eight hundred, whatever it is, drive bad or something." He said, "How about if we do? Uh, if you don't like my talk." call 1-800-343-HORN. And we got word the next day that that was a porn, you know, one of those sex lines. And the producer said, and I, I, and I, took, I took responsibility for it. I should, and I do right here in front of you, in God, in front of everybody. I take responsibility. But I turned to my associate, my assistant, and I said, did you think about calling that number? And he said, no. <laughs> so I said, we don't ever use a telephone number again. We can't use, I'll, I'll tell you, I get into trouble with it all the time. And for reasons that I don't have any clue why. Uh, we did something about peanuts. I got thousands of emails about people with peanut allergies and people dying. And then I, I made fun of them. And so we have a rule now, no diseases, no making no allergies, bars, no no allergies to that. And I go, my goodness, I never thought. It was just a fun thing to put up there just, you know, when people look at it. And, and the other guys, the other people on the show, the men and women that are on the show, can't even see the blackboard. Right. And so when I make fun of them, uh, Frank Ozzola from New York, who I really, I, I like everybody on the show. Mm-hmm. I, you know, people used to ask about me and Mariotti and get along. But. I make fun of Frank Izola, Tim Cowshaw, and I said, uh, you know, jellyfish uh, has existed for a thousand years without a brain. There's hope for Frank. And <laughs> Frank couldn't even see it. And the next day he said, what was that blackboard? He said, I'm getting all these people that are writing me. He said, players are coming up to me at the next game because players watch it. You know, right. baseball players sit in the clubhouse, and I go into clubhouses, and they'll go, uh, where'd you come up with that blackboard today? <laughs> and you know, NBA players when they're when they're sitting around in hotel rooms, they watch it. So I mean, I, I found that I, I went into a New England Patriots locker room, and the offensive line called me over, and they said, "Talk to us, talk to us. We love you. We watch you every day." And I said, "You wouldn't talk to me when I was a sports writer. Well, now you're a big <laughs> TV star." And so, what we know, and you're aware of it, is ESPN turns basic. Jags like me into quote stars, and as a result of that, the players will talk to you. The same players that wouldn't have talked to me before. Michael Strahan said to me once, I was talking to him after he got on football, and I said, "Oh, you talk to me now? You wouldn't talk to me when you're a player." He said, "Well, that's because you were a sports writer then." I said, "I'm still a sports writer. <laughs> I still and write." So. Yeah, I'm a writer. I can still write. <laughs> and that's what they started with was six old white sports writers and Jackie McMullen. 
<laughs> and and over the years, I I think for the good of the program, they've gotten younger and more diverse. And uh, I mean, we have African Americans. Uh, Pablo was born in the Philippines. Israel is Cuban. It's become really diverse. And as I said, a lot of these guys have gone on and women. I mean, uh, Sarah Spain, who was on the show today, and and Kate Fagan are doing a lot of work in their own shows on ESPNW and. And Jamel Hill and Michael Smith came from the show and are doing his and hers. And they're going to do, you know, they're going to host the 6 o'clock or whatever. Yeah, sports 6 o'clock night, sports center. Whatever time it comes up. And I, I just think it's been good. As reality now we're talking about uh, not long ago, it's been a good landing spot for a lot of young talent to kind of use the show. And they, they're highlighted and they see that they can talk and, and are, have wit and stuff. And as a result of that, they've gone on to other shows and, it kind of started for me because I I went from that show to Cold Pizza and did Dream Job, as I said, for three seasons. And I liked that show, but it was on at strange times of it, and it, it never really took off. But uh, a couple of guys that were on Dream Job are still on uh, ESPN News and on the ESPN Network. So we, we developed uh, some young talent from that Dream Job show. And the, the vice president of hiring for... ESPN at the time was one of the judges, and Stephen A. Smith and I were judges, and uh, that was a long work day, because that was plausibly live, but it took us 10, 12 hours to do that show. So I have two more questions for you, and one more about Around the Horn, and then I want to ask you about the Patriots-Broncos really quickly. Around the Horn, Mount Rushmore. I've heard Tim Callishaw give this answer before, but I want to hear what your Mount Rushmore is for Around the Horn. And it can be anyone involved with the show. It doesn't even have to be panelists. Well, Tony Reale really changed the dynamics of the show. I have to start with him. Mm-hmm. I love Tony. Max, and, and I loved Max. And, and Max and I were the first uh, real protagonist on the show, mm-hmm. antagonist, because uh, I was the older you know, guy from – he thought I lived on a farm. I mean, he didn't know anything <laughs> about anything beyond New York, and I, I mean that in, in an affectionate way. Because he said, I've flown over Colorado. Looks like a lot of farms. You live on a farm? <laughs> you had no idea about doing But when reality turned, took over the show, it, it, it changed from being Max Kellerman-centric to being about the people on the show. And it developed other people rather than being in Max. So I would start with reality because he's become a big star and gone you know, big and he's been in ABC, and maybe he'll get his wish one day to take over as the host of Jeopardy. <laughs> if he can just wait for yeah, Alex he can to, wait for the robot to die, to, to retire, <laughs> retire. Yeah, not die. I don't, I don't think that guy's going to retire. Will live, Alex will live on forever, but uh, <laughs> that's that was uh, his dream job for Tony Reale. But I think when Tony came in, it, it shifted that it was a five-person show. So I would put him. At the top of the list, he's in control, and he's funny, and uh, he's very smart, and he does help. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say that, but during on the fly during the show, he'll say, you know, we're going in the wrong direction here, guys, and he kind of draws us back in or you know, tells us to shut up and uses <laughs> the mute button. So I think he keeps the show moving. So I would put him at the top of the list. I think Bill Plasky... Uh, who wasn't with us at the beginning, but Bill Plasky is the best sports writer in the country. And he doesn't get the award every year, but 
Bill Plasky works harder at his column and does a better job at it. And I, his, he brought his mother to the show yesterday. I always thought that was fun. Bring your mother to the show. And I, I, I put Bill there because he, he is not – he's a funny guy. I've spent a lot of time with him. We've become great friends. But he didn't have a funny presence on TV, and he's really developed that over the years. And uh, I think he owns his character on TV a little bit. He gets yeah. it. He's, he gets and, that he's going to be that guy that everyone kind of just gives crap. Yeah, but he's a very serious writer. I mean, he writes funny things, but he's a very serious. I shouldn't say that. He's very serious about his craft, and I don't call it an art form. I call it a craft. We're, it's a craft that we're doing. I would put Bob on there, except Bob never really has totally concentrated on the show. He was there at the beginning, but Bob was doing and still doing sports reporters. He was doing local TV in Boston. He was doing pardon. He fills in on pardon in Russia. I'll put him on there. I put Jackie because she, she established the way for all the women who came after her. And Jackie is so sharp and people don't really know her. She's, she is a mother. She's a wife. She is a full-time writer. She does around the horn. She does a lot of the shows. She's in the, basketball hall of fame she was an athlete a player in college she was a very good player in college and she knows more people and written books about larry bird and magic johnson she wrote she kills uh autobiographies for him her book about magic and bird ended up on broadway and i don't think people realize the magnitude of the career she's had so i would put her up there i'd put plasky i would put her i would put tony rally and I would put Tim Kalashaw because Kalashaw is is a guy that uh, really never got the attention that everybody. I was with him once in somebody at a Sugar Bowl or a Super Bowl, and people everybody was gathered around me, and I said, "What about Tim Kalashaw?" And he went, "Oh yeah, hi Tim." <laughs> and I don't think he he is really a sharp guy, and really so. When you say Mount Rushmore, it's kind of like people in the beginning, Jackie. Reality, I think, turned the show in a new direction that you, you asked when it became popular. I'll, I'll tell you, we'll go back to the question you asked. The show was awful. It was going nowhere. And ESPN took a month and actually did promotions every day, commercials about the show. And people discovered it. And then the people who were uh, ripping it finally got it. The idea of the show was four guys in a bar arguing about sports. Because people ever said, you're a bunch of loud. I was the only loud person. And and the purpose behind that, kind of like what I'm doing right now, was to raise the energy level of everybody. And that's sort of what my role when I talked to ESPN was. Everybody was sports reporters oriented, you know, where they sit around. And and this is not to put down sports reporters, but if you watch sports reporters, it's like meet the press. Right. Well, we became more like four guys with a beer saying, you don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) <laughs> and I would say all the time, why do I have to straighten out you guys? Which was a line Dan Reeves used to say to the media. And I stole that saying, you know, why don't you guys don't know what you're talking about. And I think that once we were promoted, once Tim and some of the other guys developed a TV personality and we kind of, our voices were higher, but it was not yelling. Like people were saying, we were just talking in a loud manner, like you would, in a in a uh, in a bar when you were trying to prove your point. I mean, if you and I sat in the bar and you said to me, you said you have a question about the Patriots and, and Broncos, and mm-hmm. if you said there's no way Broncos can win the game, 
And two guys were sitting in a bar, and one will say, you don't know what you're talking about. That's, <laughs> that's what we're doing. And they argue a little bit. I got a, I got a letter, which is the saddest letter. I said it off the air a few days ago. The saddest letter of a guy was from a guy who said, I'm 32 years old. I'm a plumber's assistant. I'm married. I have three kids. I, I didn't graduate from high school. But every night I go and drink beer with my friends in the bar, and they all say I argue sports better than you. He said, how do I get on around the horn? And I laughed a little bit, and then I thought, well, that's sad because he won't ever be on around the horn. I mean, people don't realize that we have spent, you know, I've spent 50 years in this business. I didn't show up and be on around the horn. I mean, whether I'm bad or good, and I'm, you know, people. ESPN tells me they get more letters of people who like me and more letters of people that hate me. So I guess, you know, I'm somewhere in the middle. There you go. people hate me and half people like me. Now, <laughs> I think that's, a, like that's really a good correct. place to be. I feel like that's how they are with my podcast. You know, half like it and half want me to stop. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, but the main thing is you, people are listening or paying attention. That's yeah, all. That that's all that matters. Really. I mean, all press is good press. I, 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 you're being honest with people. I'm being honest with people. I don't go in there and make up my opinions. I, I yesterday I defended the fans uh, because the Cavaliers didn't take three players to Memphis. Right, and it's the entertainment business. And the fans have, we haven't really talked about sports in my opinions, my opinions don't matter, but <laughs> the fans, people are spending $500 to go to a game. If the Rolling Stones show up at a concert and Mick Jagger doesn't come, you can, you can get your money back. Right. Well, I think they ought to give people their money back. Well, I, you can't believe the number of emails I got in the hundreds after yesterday's show saying, you're right, thank you for defending the fans. It's forgotten that sports is entertainment. And Thursday night football, which is one of my strong passions, Thursday night football is not entertainment. It's garbage. And Richard Sermon's right. He's wrong. That poop it's fest. A poop fest. It's a, it's a shit storm. I'm sorry. But <laughs> I was trying to say that on the air on Around the Horn. It's terrible. It's doing a disservice to, to the people who – It really is so bad. They have to put every team on. And, and they should get rid of Thursday night football. We don't have to watch NFL football six days a week. Yeah, we, it's supposed to be special. It's supposed to be Sunday, and then Monday night was special. A Sunday night special. That's enough. We don't need Saturday games like they're having this week. We don't need Thursday night games. And the player safety that the NFL keeps talking about is being just totally dismissed. It's BS. The players are not recovered by Thursday, and they're playing on the road, and they're playing on the road again. They're they're playing. At home on Sunday night and playing again on Thursday, it makes no sense whatsoever for, for, for the NFL to come forward. It's like the tobacco in, industry saying, oh, it doesn't cause cancer. Well, they finally admit it does. <laughs> well, guess what? This is causing, A, people to not like football as much because it's thrown in their face all the time, and, B, it's causing players to be injured and not playing well. And I said, okay, if the NBA is going to leave three players at home, what what – pro coach is going to have the courage to rest eight or 10 of his starters on a Thursday night game Ooh. and say, I'm not going to put my, I'm not going to put Tom Brady out there. It would take Pete Carroll or Bill Belichick to say they could turn this around. Mm-hmm. If Pete Carroll said, I am not going to play Russell Wilson. I am not going to play seven of my defensive starters, just like in the preseason games. Don't play them. Well, the NFL would have to listen to that because, I mean, you are you either have to do that or you have to give them a bye the week before. I've never heard that point brought up about maybe a coach should sit their guys on Thursday like an NBA thing. That's actually really interesting. 
Well, and, and Reali said that may have been the best the best argument I've ever made in the history of the show. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm taking it back. That's, that's a really good point. I feel like if Jim well, Harbaugh was back in the NFL, he's the type of guy that would have done that. I'm not passionate about everything in life, and some days you have to get kind of excited about subjects you really don't care that much about. <laughs> but, uh, well, you know. That's part far, of the job, right? We just got to get excited about things that really don't matter. Sure, and if you're going to do it, and, and I found out, I was a general columnist for years, and I found out people care a lot more about sports than they do politics. That's been obvious over the last eight months, how people treated this election. So let's talk about the Patriots and the Broncos. Yeah, I so, think the Broncos are going to lose. I, I wrote last week that the Broncos are going to lose their last four games. Well, I remember before and, the season when you talked with one of my hosts on uh, Sports Center All Night, you said that the Broncos weren't even going to win seven games. So this, they're already they're, overachieving, right? No, I no, I picked them to win ten. So oh, okay. You must have been I in a bad mood that night. <laughs> uh, no, well, maybe I maybe I felt that, but in the final analysis, I picked them to win ten. Oh, okay, I did. I, I picked the Kansas City Chiefs before the season to go into the Super Bowl. I'm not. I didn't hurt my arm trying to pat myself on the back, but <laughs> picked the Chiefs to be in the Super Bowl. Didn't pick the Dallas Cowboys. I think I picked the Packers. And the Packers, I might still do it. They're going. I said a few weeks ago they're going to run the table. But I think that that the Chiefs people didn't pay as much attention to them. Didn't pay attention to how they ended last season. I mean, they won like seven games a row before they they lost in the playoffs, and they came out winning another six or seven. The Chiefs are really good, but they don't get a lot of attention because everybody thinks. Alex Smith is just an average quarterback, which, you know, he's a game manager, which people spit when they're saying it. But the Patriots are good again. They could go to the Super Bowl, obviously. And uh, the Broncos have no offense. Defense wins championships, but you've got to have, if you don't have an offense, you've got to at least have a leader like they have Peyton. And they're really missing Peyton. And I, I spent uh, two or three weeks ago in New Orleans, I spent the day with Archie. And Peyton would keep playing if he just didn't keep getting hurt. And that's what bothers me about Brady saying, I want to play till he's 45. He says that. Well, he's one cushion away or one knee injury away or one surgery like Peyton Manning had in the way of, because Archie told me Peyton would have played for another five or six years because he loved it so much, but he kept getting injured. And that's what I'm fearful that Drew Brees and Tom Brady are going to want to play that they're 45, but they better hope they don't, get hurt. John Elway spent all his money on defense and Von Miller and you got Akeeb and you got Chris Harris Jr. and you got two really good safeties Brandon Marshall in the middle and, and Demarcus Ware they brought back for another year. They still have one of the top three or four defenses but their offense is so bad they can't beat the Patriots. Anybody talks about well they beat the Patriots all the time. They beat the Patriots when they had Peyton Manning. <laughs> when they had Tim Tebow they got blown out here and blown out in New England. <laughs> And so they're not going to beat the Patriots. The Patriots are going to run the football like the Titans did. Belichick has managed to figure out how to do without Gronk, but that's what they do. They When Edelman gets hurt, they fight, plug somebody else in. When Amadella gets hurt, they plug somebody else in. They've got a good offensive line. Blunt's been an instrument for them, and they'll run the football, and the defense is good enough. Belichick outsmarts and outcoaches other teams. So that's kind of what I think about sports. I guess <laughs> there you go. That, you got all your sports out. <laughs> and we've so, talked about everything from Trump to referees dying. And <laughs> I've seen so many amazing things. I saw Tiger Woods win his first major. At, one of the, I, I, I'll just end on this because you're tired of me. Nobody else is. <laughs> uh, I, 
I've seen so many amazing things in sports in the Olympics. And, and I was in 97, I was in Augusta, and Tiger Woods won his first Masters. And it was one of the most meaningful days in sports for me, growing up in the South and seeing how African-Americans were treated when I was young. And I'd, my dad would take me to minor league baseball games, and, and African-Americans had to sit in an area out in left field. And I asked my dad, and he said, it's unfair. And so I thought about that the day that I was at Augusta, standing on the upper tier of that plantation clubhouse, which it started as a plantation. And, the, and it was up on the top with all the African-Americans who worked there. And watching their faces as an African-American won the Masters, which was, when you enter the gates of Augusta National, it's like stepping back in time. It's like, you know, the old white guys club. And for Tiger Woods to win there, that was probably my most meaningful day as a sports writer. I'm standing here watching all of those African-Americans who worked the staff at Augusta, their caddies and their they work in the clubhouse and how they went. Yes, that that kid did it. And I, I, th- I think of all the stuff that I've covered, having covered civil rights in the South, having grown up in the South, that was my most meaningful day as, uh, as a sports writer. Otherwise, I'm just a jag, just another guy. <laughs> Aren't we all? Woody, you are the best. This was the best conversation I have had on this podcast and the best conversation I've had in a long time. So I really appreciate you coming on. And well, I hopefully hope we, we talk can soon. Have a convers- I hope we can have a conversation in a bar and we can raise our voices and we and let's do this again sometime. But next time, let's don't talk about around the horn or, <laughs> or me. Let's talk about interesting subjects in sports. Woody, Thank really you appreciate it, man. On. It's been fun for me. I enjoy around the horn and I've enjoyed this hour. I think it was supposed to be a 15 minute conversation. <laughs> I've enjoyed this time with you and I hope you'll invite me again. But I'll, when I have a podcast, I promise you'll be my first guest and we'll talk. We'll spend an hour talking about you. I am going to hold you to that. I, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to get a podcast because I don't have enough to do. In my life. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Woody. Thanks, man. Really appreciate it. Let's Take talk care. soon. Have a great evening. Football season is finally back. Can you name the guys who were picked ahead of you, Tom? The quarterbacks, Chad Pennington was picked in the first round. Chris Redman was picked in the third round. Giovanni Carmazzi was picked in the third round, I think. T. Martin was picked in the fifth round. Spurgeon Wynn was picked. Um, There was one other guy, small school guy, Mark Bolger. You know what that means. Hola. Me llamo Roberto. Oh, uh, sí. Uh, yo, yo soy fiesta. <laughs> the Pats are back. Stack receivers, two to the right. Russell Wilson extends the hands. He has Pass. Wilson, quick throw. And it's good. Intercepted. Intercepted to Malcolm Butler. Butler has it at the one. Malcolm Butler stepped in front of the throw. And the Patriots have possession with 20 seconds to go. Tom Talks presents... Pat's chat. Unicorns, show ponies. Where's the beef? We're now joined by Phil Perry of Comcast Sportsnet New England. And Phil, let's start with Devin Hester. They kicked the tires on him today up at Gillette. What are we to make of that? Yeah, it's interesting, Tom, because uh, they've obviously had their issues when it comes to the punt return game uh, this season, really. 
going back to training camp, the guy that they hoped would take that job, rookie Cyrus Jones, who they drafted in the second round, explosive punt, uh, punt returner for Alabama last year, returned four for touchdowns. He's just had a hard time securing the football consistently, and they've continued to run him out there. But another fumble against the Ravens on Monday night might lead the Patriots to pull the plug on him for the rest of the season, at least in that specific role. They had a couple of other options on the roster here. They have Julian Edelman. You look at his numbers in terms of career average per return, pretty good. In fact, one of the best ever. Um, but a guy that you also want to make sure that you're you're keeping healthy for the stretch run, and so maybe you don't want to subject him to any extra hits in the kicking game. Then they brought in Griff Whalen last week, who has experience in the punt return game as well, returned 46 punts over the course of his career. So for them to bring in Hester is an interesting move. Obviously, an incredibly accomplished guy in that particular role, but his recent history would suggest that he's not the best fit because for all the problems Cyrus Jones has had, securing the football. Devin Hester has been just as problematic in that area. He's fumbled five times this year. He had a hamstring earlier in the year that he was dealing with that I think slowed him down. And then this past week against the Patriots, he had a tough game himself. He, you know, he didn't have the, uh, the all eyeballs on you kind of fumble that Cyrus Jones had, but he let two punts bounce behind him and roll around down by the, by uh, the Ravens goal line, one of which led to a safety to get the scoring started in that game. So hasn't been a great, um, last few weeks for Devin Hester, and interesting that they would bring him in to get a look, but it seems like they're just trying to do their due diligence, as they always do here in Foxborough when guys pop up and are available. Was it a case where Belichick just like loves this guy, like he loved Ed Reed, so anytime Ed Reed was on the market, Belichick always had to you know, sniff around or let it be known that he loved Ed Reed. Is Devin Hester in that category as one of those guys Belichick just loves? Like, like Hecker for the Rams. You know, like exactly. is, is he yeah. in that category? You know, I'm not sure he he's quite um in that, you know, very um special sort of the uh, elite Belichick of their relationship. Yes, yeah. There's there's a there's a level of love there for, for guys like Ed Reed and Jason Taylor was another great one who we talked about for years. Uh Dwight Freeney, you know, those kinds of guys I think are on a different level, but certainly uh you don't do as much as you've done in the league as Devin Hester has and you know do it in a league that Bill Belichick has coached in for as long as he has and not have um, a little bit of respect for the guy and again I think it's just you know he clearly has a, a unique um, talent in terms of being able to uh, you know I don't think he's as explosive as he was you know five or six years ago Tom but uh, you know just the ability to to have the vision that, that Hester has shown throughout the course of his career to re-blocks the way he has and make big plays in that area, that's something Bill Belichick's always going to have his eyes on. We know he's a former special teams coach himself. Uh, he obviously knows the importance that the kicking game can play in a given week. Um, and so just to bring him in, see what he has left, um, maybe even just try to talk to him and see, you know, what's the what's the, the root of all these, these fumbling issues that you've had this year? Do you feel like you're over them? If they can get a feel for that, um, and if something were to happen, I don't anticipate um, assigning any time soon here. The Patriots are set to travel to Denver tomorrow. Uh, and so, you know, unless they, they feel like Hester can contribute really without any practice time under his belt with the Patriots, I would think that this, if it's going to happen, would be something that would happen down the line as opposed to any time in the next couple of days. Tom, uh, I'm I may have to cut this short because it looks like the Patriots have added a talented piece to the Patriots roster 
for Tom Brady to throw to. Uh, just a couple minutes ago, uh, ESPN, Steel Gates, reported that the Patriots have claimed Michael Floyd. Oh, wow. Former Cardinals receiver. Can't believe that actually of, just happened. Off of waiver. So that's uh, a little bit of uh, interesting news to break <laughs> uh, while we're talking. Look at that. That means that, that I have to get going. We, uh, we have, unfortunately have to do a... Uh, a little television program here and yeah. talk about Michael Floyd. You got to break so really into Felger and Maz right now? or <laughs> <laughs> We'll see. We'll see. I don't know if, uh, you know, those guys usually don't like to relinquish any FaceTime uh, on camera, <laughs> but but we'll, uh, we'll have something uh, up there very soon. So, yeah, Phil Perry had to cut our conversation short there. Uh, Michael Floyd breaking news. Pat signing the receiver from Arizona, having dealt with a few DUIs. Looks like they parted ways with him and – the Pats claimed him off waivers, so should be interesting to see how that all plays out. And check Phil out on Twitter. He'll have all the reporting on it in the next few weeks. So before we go, I talked to Woody a little bit about the passing of Craig Sager. Obviously a giant in reporting in the sports world for years. Passed away today. We're recording this on Thursday, December 15th. And... He didn't work at ESPN, so I didn't cross paths with him. And I figured I would let Woody take the floor and talk about his relationship with him, having been in sports for years. I figured their paths had crossed at some point. So we'll close this out with Woody Page talking about the passing of Craig Sager. Over the years, we uh, we were not close friends like we weren't going to dinner all the time, but uh, I, I've had an opportunity the last couple of years to to be with him a couple of times, and uh, I think, but to put this correctly, and I'm not in his category, we're both kind of unique sports TV people, and I think it was forgotten how good he was, <clears throat> you know, by a lot of people how good he was as a reporter of news and sports because of his sport coats. Craig was utmost. I think people didn't pay attention to the fact that he revealed stories. He, he had breaking news all the time uh, while he was doing his sideline reporter. And people think about his, goings back and forth with Popovich. I've known Popovich since he was very young. Popovich was having fun with him, and it became a routine. And they both enjoyed it, and it was it was a point of. But I would see Craig at, at games like in, in Los Angeles, and we'd talk about He said, uh, can I borrow your blackboard and your props? <laughs> and I'd say, yeah, give me your sport coat. And you can have blackboard for a week, and I'll have your sport coat for a week. And so we had very lighthearted conversations about the fact that we both had kind of. I, when I when I die, I will be remembered for the blackboard, not my writing. Uh, Craig has died, and I just want to emphasize that people have to remember that for a long, long time he was known for being a great uh, basketball reporter and a guy who broke stories and had scoops and did great interviews. And then he started having some fun with it, with, with his outfits and, and his personality in regard to his conversations with Popovich, that I want people to remember that he was a serious journalist and a 
serious TV reporter. I don't think I was good enough to be his friend, but I was good enough to be a guy that spent uh, a lot of nights talking to him and having fun and talking serious basketball, but talking about the fact that we were kind of two personalities on TV that people maybe weren't <laughs> taking us seriously. <laughs> and, but he, he was as big in developing the growth of the NBA as a lot of players. So I have great respect for him. And it was sad to me. And I cried when I heard, even though we knew it was coming, uh, that he, he, I think, like Jimmy V, that the awareness of what was going on with both of them transcends sports, and I think it gets more people uh, to paying attention to trying to do something about these horrific diseases. And, and I end in tribute to, to Craig Sager that when I was a young reporter in the South and writing obituaries, I was not allowed to use the word cancer. And it wasn't me, just me. I mean, it wasn't because I was doing it. We didn't say the word cancer. When I wrote an obituary about somebody who died of cancer, I would have to say uh, Fred Smith died yesterday after a long illness. And I would ask uh, the editors, why can't I use the word cancer? And it was like it was a horrific, it was such a horrific disease you didn't want to talk about in public. I think that that paralyzed the country in its awareness of trying to do something about it. I think dealing with cancer was like something that was put in the cupboard, put in the back. And, and so I think that the more awareness we have, and, and finally, I think that now in obituaries, it will say he died of cancer. And when you say somebody died, they say they died of cancer. Well, we have to, in order to get it out in the open, I won an award from the Suicide Prevention, National Suicide Prevention Center years ago because I talked about how, uh, and this was right before I went on around the horn, uh, I was on a day that I was trying to commit suicide, I was saved from it. And people don't understand why people commit suicide. And Joan Rivers has great, brought great attention to it. Well, Craig Saker brought great attention to, to the disease he had. And I think that uh, uh, we were a better country for his presence in sports and on television. And we're a great country even more so because of the awareness he brought to, to what he was going through. Lost in the mirror I knew your face once but now it's unclear And I can't feel my body now I separate from here Into a parallel 
Strange. 